The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Call me Snake. Excellent. Look at you guys got a producer and everything. I've got a Walt, and he doesn't do a whole lot. Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I am Molly Balin. And I am Eric Deutsch. And we welcome back again Alan Sanders from the Wilder Ride podcast. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. Welcome back. Yay. Yay. Yay me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are uh, entering uh, minute 20 here. And starting with Minute 20, we begin with Hauk telling Snake about who was actually on the small jet. And it ends with a request for some pardon paper. So let, let's, get to, let's get to another awesome line here. We, we basically uh, gave this out in yesterday's episode, but another one of my favorite lines in this movie. You know, the president was on board and Snake just, president of what? I mean, it's just, it's so, it's such a great line. It's delivered so great. It's a perfect example of him not giving a shit. And again, because when I was a kid, I thought that he knew the present personally, it added to my amusement of the line. Because I thought that he knew this guy and was fucking with him anyway, saying the president of what. So it's it's just so great, Hauk, with his... That's not funny, Pliskin. And in the script, it's interesting because Pliskin says our president and Hauk nods and snake starts to laugh and then uh Hauk gives the same it's not funny pliskin line this is so much better well it goes back i i got a question because it goes back to does he really think it's the president because at the end of yes or the end of last minute he said a small jet so did he mean maybe the president of some nakatomi corporation or something <laughs> or did he mean the actual president of the united states which is obviously what he does mean, but then we go back to why a small jet. I mean, it's a it's a dick comment, but I mean, it is an authentic question. I mean, he's just showed up at prison. He doesn't know what they want them to do. And if we assume it's the president of the United States, which it is, I love the subtext of when he says president of what, as in like, what, what do you think he's the president of? Have you not paid attention to what's going on? Uh, this is not the country I know. This is not the country I fought for initially. I don't know what president he's, I don't know what he's a president of. Not, but he's not a president of anything that I would recognize. Well, he even says in this minute, he says, I don't give a fuck about your war or your president. Right. And he says, you're president. So, right. you know, it's Snake saying, I'm done with this country. The president of this country is not my president because I have rejected this country. And, and I, and I, I want to make that distinction of because he's still the hero. It's not the country he remembers. Whatever that version was, we get that sense that, it's gone a direction he can no longer agree with. And that's why he disassociates himself saying, you're president. He's not mine. We can all argue about whether we like the president, but he's the president of everybody. That's the way we should look at the president. But when you start using terms like, oh, that's your president, not mine, you're definitely disassociating yourself with the country. Well, and that's, that's, that's interesting. It leads into a quote that I wanted to give here from John Carpenter because he's, another quote he gave about the movie was he says, America loves outlaws, and that's one of the reasons he felt Snake was such a popular character. But Snake, to me, is not an outlaw. 
And there's a quote from Kurt Russell about it where he says, he's a mean, arrogant son of a bitch. He's not very endearing, but I think you sympathize with his situation because of his strong individualism. He's the epitome of the anti-hero, and that's what Snake is. He's an anti-hero. He's not an outlaw. I agree with that. I, I, I don't like the idea of him being, quote, an outlaw. Now, obviously, he's in there for doing something. He broke into the, I believe what they said yesterday, they robbed the Federal Reserve Depository, which we didn't really chat a lot about. Why would a war hero sink to that? Which we could have some fun thinking about. Why did he? And what, what depths did he sink to that he thought it was worth doing that? But... Even if he was a, quote, committed a criminal act, the character of Snake Plissken throughout this movie, for me, is that definition of anti-hero. He's going to do the right things, not necessarily the authoritarian things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. And, and I can see more along the lines of uh, a John Dillinger, almost like a folk hero, because he is a really potent combination of someone who is not only just a war hero, just a war hero, uh, but he's also somebody who is, you know, decorated. He's also someone who is special forces. So you're talking about somebody who had an exceptional sense of patriotism and sacrifice and, and, and willingness to really, you know, put his life on the line for his country. So I think, you know, just speaking of, of American culture, I think that that's a very... A uh, resonant idea, and to have someone at the same time who has robbed a bank, you know, there's nothing more I think American than somebody who's a former war hero who robs a bank. I think it touches something pretty deep in us that this is somebody who is uh, willing to be very rogue in his own way. The other thing about this is I think Kurt Russell has a baby face, so I think it's interesting just looking at him as is somebody who's embodying this character that he's not. You know, he doesn't have, uh, you know, he's not a young Tommy Lee Jones. He doesn't have this, like, grizzled, you know, yes, he's got the eye patch, but, and and I think that hardens him up a little bit, and the leather jacket hardens him up a little bit. But he does have a very, like, soft kind of uh, handsome exterior, which I think also makes him a very endearing character, even though he's a complete dick in these few minutes. I was thinking about something just now because the other lines that follow is, we'll get a new president, and then he's like, come on, you know, we're still at war. And he goes, I don't give a fuck about your war. There's that your again. Made me think, did Snake maybe think, if I rob the depository, if I take away the ability to fund this quote-unquote war, would that make it come to an end? Was he trying to do, in his mind, the thing to stop all this nonsense even if it meant breaking the law, which, of course, goes back to being the anti-hero. I kind of like that. I just popped in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, wouldn't that be a reason? Like, cause where, where else do we get an explanation for why he suddenly is being affiliated with trying to rob the Federal, the Federal Reserve Depository? Unless he thought that in some way robbing it would deplete the war fund effort. Yeah, uh, this... We- this is another thing from the book that we got into in a previous minute that basically the government screwed him over. He, his, the, the mission that he was on where he lost the eyesight in the one eye and was exposed to nerve gas was the government completely screwing him up. The government then seizes his parents' life savings. His parents are killed uh, accidentally and they steal his life savings. And he basically decides, fuck this country I'm going to go rob this bank. Now, I, I, you know, having not actually read the book, everything I give out 
over the course of this podcast, when I give out stuff for the book, is just me, you know, reading stuff uh, of, of highlights. So I haven't read the book, so I don't know how specific they get into of why that's what he chose to do as his giving the middle finger to the country. I think that robbing the federal depository, thinking it would end the war, I think that seems a little far-fetched, only because the amount of money he would have to steal to actually be able to defund the war, he's not fitting that in one of those uh, little money bags that they carry around, you know? Well, maybe he's going to do the Goldfinger thing, and he's going to put a bomb in there and irradiate the gold. You can't use it. No, I I didn't say it was a great idea. I just said it popped in my (laughs) head. But something about it, though, has always bugged me about... Because I like the character. I love his character. He's always He is trying to... Obviously, his self-preservation is what motiva- motivates him. But he also is trying to do the right things to survive, to keep the people around him to survive. And you want to root for him. You want him to win. And But if you keep in the back of your mind, well, but then he was reduced to a petty criminal. He just decided to rob a bank. Kind of lessens that to me. So I was always trying to figure out, well, why did he... And I guess the book, the novelization, tries to give it the, well, he just wanted to at least recoup the money that was stolen from him. That's, that, that works as well. I don't know. I kind of like the idea that in his mind he was, he was trying to screw the government out of, out of their money, no matter what. But yeah, you're right. I mean, anyone who's listening to this show is a, a big enough fan of the movie that they want to listen to this dissection minute by minute. And if you're a fan of this movie... You're a fan of Snake Plissken. I mean, there's I, I can't imagine there's someone that's a huge fan of this movie that is like, yeah, I love the movie, but, eh, you know, honestly, Snake's the one character that just really kind of just doesn't do it for me. You know, <laughs> it, it just you know he's such an arrogant prick, but you you every you just love him. You you're pulling for him to succeed the entire movie. Yeah, he's the guy that's doing what's in the backs of our minds when we're in difficult situations we wish we could get away with doing. You know, we, we realize this world is a, is a sort of a fantasy-type setting. It's obviously not real. It's, it's more of an allegory. But in that, quote, fantasy realm, in that sort of dystopian created world, we love the idea that someone can get away with being like this when they... F- Get you know the justification of getting away or acting like this, you know, I to be able to put your feet up on the president's desk if you wanted to, or take their cigar, or you know, tell them to go fuck themselves. You know that this idea of just I don't have to worry about social norms and convention. I can do what I want. Yeah, there was a quote from the producer Deborah Hill who said the ki- he's the kind of character we all want to be but are afraid to be. Or through again societal norms, we are schooled not to be because. A lot of times these ideas probably pop up in our head. The idea of the guy that cuts you off, you just want to then turn around and you know, put his car you know, into a tree. But you realize, if I do that, I get arrested, I go to jail, I lose my job. <laughs> so you don't do it. You know? Man saved, you know? just because you decide to follow social norms. But <laughs> Snake Plissken, no problem. I'm going to put your butt into a tree and keep going and smoke a cigarette. So then we talk about the plane. The, the the other plane, not the small jet plane that is actually Air Force One, but Hauk tells Pliskin he's going to fly a Gulf fire. That's how he's going to get him into the prison. And until I started researching for this movie, I always thought that he was saying Gulf fire. Right. In the shooting script, it actually says Gulf fire, which has to be a typo, because what the hell is a Gulf fire? You mean like the game Gulf? Like the game Gulf. So I, it has to be a typo because I don't want to believe it's not. 
<laughs> but it is gullfire, G-U-L-L-F-I-R-E. Yeah, like a, a gliding seagull. Yeah. I don't know. Are you fans of... Um... Well, this, old, this book's been out a while ago. I love uh, all the whole cyberpunk era, and I was big into William Gibson for a long time. But um, this that line about, you know, you, fo- you flew the Gulf Fire over Leningrad, which, by the way, is now St. Petersburg again, so <laughs> it's, a little, uh, anac- it's a little out of place because I know they were trying to set it in the future when the movie came out, but who knew that in 1991 the wall would fall and they would rename it back to St. Petersburg. But... William Gibson liked that line a lot for some reason. And one of my favorite cyberpunk books was a book called Neuromancer. And, it, and again, you had sort of this anti-hero guy that, uh, it, and it was in a world where you kind of meshed with the machine world a little, you know, uh, you, you, you had an avatar and you kind of went into this, you know, the cyber universe sort of. And there was a line, and I had to look it up, but he refers back in the book... Um, to a scene where Armitage, who also goes by Colonel Willis Corto, was a former member of Special Forces who flew an ultralight aircraft deep into Russian territory during World War III to disable the enemy computer systems, but then got shot down, uh, and one of the surviving members managed to escape through the Finnish border, and that basically would be right next to where St. Petersburg would be located. So it's almost like hmm. that line about you flew the gull over Leningrad stuck with William Gibson. And so he created this sort of like flashback story about this character who had to fly a ultralight aircraft deep into Russian territory during World War III. So it's almost like it was an inspiration to take that line and sort of create a fictional backstory for just a minor subplot in Neuromancer. That's cool. So if you've never read Neuromancer, if you're into cyberpunk at all, or if you if you like those kind of stories, it's it's probably one of my favorite cyberpunk novels. I've read it multiple times. It's just a lot of fun. It's recommendation day on Escape from New York Minute. Speaking of recommendations, I actually have an additional one. Uh, speaking of an artist who's taking inspiration from this movie, uh, there's an electronic music artist. I don't know if anyone is as a fan, but I'm a fan of electronic music, and uh, his name's... Mogi Grumbles, and he made a whole album called I Thought You Were Dead. And basically all of the songs, it's amazing. Look it up. It's incredible. And it's, I mean, it's legitimately an amazing album to listen to. It's its totally danceable, totally listenable. Um, and he's done some other uh, movie reference albums, but this one really is a work of art. And he specifically has a song called Special Forces Unit Texas Thunder. So... That has some applicability to these particular minutes, but uh, I, I think it's a—I uh, mean, even the cover art is incredible. So, Mogi Grumbles, check it out. Yeah, I would not call that a thinly veiled homage to this movie. <laughs> I think no. that's hitting you over the head with it. No, it is, and all that's... of the song titles are all references to the movie as well. All right, I wrote down the name of the of the song. What's the name of the of the artist again? Uh, Mogi M O G I, and then the second name is Grumbles. Mogi Grumbles, got it. Mogi yeah, I'll Grumbles. check that out. I love, I love a lot of that, you know, electronica, technica, all that kind of. My brother used to be a trans tech DJ for clubs and stuff, so it was always a lot of fun. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, I mean, there's a song called Fresno Bob. <laughs> Gulf Fire is a song on there. Special, special Forces Unit, Blacklight. Great. So there's one for the for Hauk and one for Pliskin. Yes very equitable. Well, damn, I don't have anything to recommend. Well, give it time. Let it percolate. Um, I know you probably already talked about it early, but um, 
I do like the music. It gives it an 80s feel. It sounds like an 80s movie, which, of course, at the time was probably cutting edge. But I can immediately tell any John Carpenter movie that's coming on without having to see the screen. I mean, it just sounds like John Carpenter. And I just I, I, I know I just wanted to point that out. I'm sorry. You can edit that out if you want. It's just love John Carpenter, sort of that electronic synthesizer, almost modern at the time of the 80s, that sort of new age uh, electronica st- sound of music. And it's, it's fantastic from Christine to The Thing to um, The Fog. I mean, I just love pretty much everything of John Carpenter. Well, a couple exceptions, but I do love John Carpenter's work. We, we're, we're not going to edit that, that out, Alan. We'd have to edit out just about every guest saying that. <laughs> Sorry. He is a fantastic musician in his own right. So, and to have somebody, again, who's unique enough to create his own soundtrack and direct, I think it, you know, deserves much accolade. So, you know, he, he deserves all the kind words for sure. Well, I know uh, I did, and what and I blame Harper Harris of The Thing Minute because he got mm-hmm. me into this whole format. And next thing you know, I was doing my own, much to my wife's chagrin. But <laughs> um, he had just gone to see John Carpenter on his music tour where he played music from his, his soundtracks and his, and his other compositions and then would talk to the audience. And Harper was like, that was just fantastic. And I wish I could have seen that. Yeah, he tours. I, 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 he still actively tours. So I don't know if he's literally touring as of this exact moment or if he has another one coming up, but he is still active out there. So there's a good chance that he could be touring again sometime in the near future. So I, we can get back to the minute. I just, these little segues, I just started realizing like, we haven't talked about the music and that popped out of my mouth. Well, let's, uh, I want to bring up the patch because the, the patch was brought, it was mentioned yesterday how it was Kurt Russell's idea for the patch. And of course we've mentioned the patch before, but just to tie it all together, that, an interesting anecdote about it is when Kurt Russell went to John Carpenter with the idea, Kurt Russell wasn't sure what response he would be. That his thought was a lot of directors were like, no, 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 that's, that's not in the script. We're not doing that. And Carpenter immediately loved the idea and said, absolutely, let's do it. And so it's just another example of how John Carpenter runs his movies, his openness to collaboration, his willingness to listen to the cast and crew around him. And if in his mind, it makes his movie better who cares if it's not his idea? Yeah, I think it really adds to it because I think losing an eye or I think really any appendage is a is a trauma. And I think it really helps the character to see that this man has gotten substantially hurt and you can see it and you can hear it. But I think the eye patch is really uh, poignant in a lot of ways. I think it's a, it was a great call. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. Um, I also know and... Um, Oh, God, with Brain, uh, Harry Dane Stanton's character, which we haven't seen yet, but I do know that there was a, I saw some, God, it's been forever. I remember hearing something or seeing some documentary where Harry Dean Stanton had never worked with John Carpenter before. John called him up and said, I would like you for this movie. And he goes, well, you're going to be okay. Because he sent the script over or something and said, are you okay if I change around the words? And John Carpenter was like, I don't care as long as you don't change the meaning. And I remember hearing that thinking, that's a cool director who's like, you know, he trusts the actor to get the right voice as long as the message stays the same. And I think that goes to the same story here with Kurt Russell. I think a director like that, like Kurt, like uh, John Carpenter, he's sort of an actor's director. He trusts his actors to make good decisions. Well, I think that's why we've seen him be serially successful. 
because he has a real identity as a director. And we know not all directors do. You know, this is somebody who has created a loyal community where we see over and over and over again. And we've talked about this pre- previous to this minute that he's carried a lot of people with him that he works with. And so he's created a tight knit crew of professionals who obviously enjoy working with him and do good work because you wouldn't continue to work together if that wasn't the case. And so there's a a very successful collaboration and a brand that's come about from that. Mm -hmm. I think what Kurt Russell did at least four films with John Carpenter. Yeah. Let's see the two escape snake Plissken movies. And he was in Elvis Oh, five then, because he was the thing, and he oh, was the in oh, yeah, uh, thing, yeah. uh, the Big Trouble in Little China. Right. Yep, yep. So five, I think Elvis was the first thing they did together, right? Yes, it was. Yep. And that led to this. Yep. And then The Thing. Okay, got it. I love The Thing, by the way. I know that's not what this is about, but geez. You, I think Kurt Russell just goes, I kind of like this look. I'm just going to go ahead and keep it. Is that okay? I'll just get rid of the eye patch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John Carpenter's one of those... Uh, people that if you go to his Wikipedia page, check out John Carpenter's Wikipedia page, and he's one of those people where they have a chart on his Wikipedia page with all of the people that have worked with him more than once. And so you've got the grid going up and down are all of his movies, and the grids going across are the the actors and the cast members and the crew members he's worked with. And you just see, you know, so many boxes filled here, you know, You've got just it's it's a really cool thing to look at. So you could see it means the actors like working with him. It means when he has somebody that he that does what he wants, he sticks with them. You know, there are there are a lot of directors obviously that do this. You know, uh, Quentin Tarantino does it, and uh, Timothy Burton does it. But his, his, there's got to be about I'm looking at it right now. There's got to be about two dozen names on this chart though. So it shows you just how well liked he is. That's awesome. I'd I want that. <laughs> that one that one that's in a lifetime casting, the director goes, I really like working with you. I've got another idea. I'm like, really? <laughs> Let's talk. Be the Johnny Depp to uh, Tim Burton, right? Right. Mm, yep. So, uh, Alan, what's what's your history with the movie? Do you remember seeing it for the first time or, or, or you know, did, what, how old were you when you watched it? So this is one of those weird things where everybody that I grew up with started getting cable and my mom and dad thought it was going to be a fad. So everyone was talking about this movie while I wasn't allowed to see it. And then when I finally saw it, it was the television edited for television version. So I got the gist of the movie. It was probably not until I was in my mid to late teens when I was old enough to drive to the the video store and my brother and I would just go and every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we would pick three, four movies to watch over the weekend. And... I remember saying, oh, there's that movie that, you know, we saw on TV, but everybody was talking about it. Let's check it out. And I remember going, wow, this is so much better unedited. <laughs> so, um, And then uh, I sent you guys pictures of it, but I bought when it came out on a, a special anniversary collector's edition of Escape from New York that had a, a little miniature comic book in it. It had a, uh, a behind-the-scenes DVD as well as a kind of a four-way pullout. Um, so I love, I love stuff like this where I can just read it's almost like when you used to get albums back, you know, when, you know, vinyl, where you would open up the album and you like look at all this art and read all this stuff while you were, you know, listening to the music. For me, this was sort of like the ultimate collector's edition. And I'll be honest, I do not have it on Blu-ray and I need to add it to my Blu-ray collection because I've been slowly having to do that now for the hundreds of DVDs. Now I'll go back and decide, okay, which ones do I now want to own? 
I had on VHS, then on DVD. Now I got to get on Blu-ray. Oh, so you're doing that because I have a DVD player and I just I'm holding out. I refuse to go buy a Blu-ray player because it's just I'm not going to spend the money to replace all my DVDs. No, I'm already at that point where I, I won't replace all of them because a lot of them will do the whole upscaling. But now you're looking at I bought a 4K HD, uh, Ultra HD TV last year for the family. That was like our big Christmas. And that is so you know pretty. Now I'm like, <laughs> do we got to go buy the 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray player? I'm like, yes. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> and now I'm trying to decide, can I hold off until the PlayStation 5? Because we, we use our PlayStation 4 as our, as our player. Or just deal with Blu-ray on the Ultra HD. I mean, it looks good on the, on the TV, but I'm not a big going to the movie theater anymore. It's so freaking expensive. I'll go see for like the big movies. But I've got a 65-inch 7.1 surround sound system at home. So I'm pretty comfortable kicking back, relaxing, and watching a home like my home theater, seeing the movies on a mini big screen, if you will. Molly, what's uh, what what's your machine? What do you got to watch? Uh, we also just recently got a 4K. Um, we have an Xbox One, or when I say we, I mean me. I play the Xbox One, um, <laughs> and uh, we have a Blu-ray that we've had. Um, so if you want our Blu-ray, I will totally hook you up because I ended up taking it out because now we just use the Xbox for uh, playing movies. But I never, I, I just didn't give a shit enough to upgrade everything because, you know, I've got a mix now of Blu-ray and DVD and I'm like, it's good enough. You know, I don't need to see people's pores on their faces. We're good. Yeah, I'm the, and I'm, I don't want to say that I'm that video file purist like that, but I also know from the sound because I'm a sound person. Obviously I, my background's in radio. We're here doing a podcast. I love the medium of sound and communication and talking and hearing the music and the layering and the texturing. And you're not going to be able to get that now, which I have to upgrade my whole home stereo and the amplifier to the 9.1 Atmos surround where you're putting extra speakers, but you need that new higher platform with all of those new tracks of sound to really fill the space. And my wife just looks at me and goes, I can't tell the difference. And I'm like, oh, babe. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> there is, do you, do you, either of you know the movie Free Enterprise? Uh-uh. There is, it came out maybe 20 years ago. It's got, uh, it's about sci-fi geeks and who are big Star Wars, Star Trek fans. William Shatner has a funny cameo as himself in it. And at one point, there's a scene where there are two guys talking with one of the guy's girlfriends. And the guy says something about a DVD player, and, and, and the girlfriend says something along the lines of, like, well, you know, whatever. What's the, you, know, you can just watch it on my VCR, whatever, DVD player. And the guy's friend just goes, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Man. <laughs> I can so relate to that. My, I can tell, like, we, this drives my wife nuts. I know you can choose to get rid of some of this, but we sat there. We were going to do a Lord of the Rings marathon, the director's cuts, one weekend. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, something doesn't sound right. She goes, what are you talking about? It's the movie. Just sit back and watch. I'm like, no, something doesn't sound right. And I could tell one of the speakers that one of the kids or one of the dogs went behind and one of the wires was loose enough that it wasn't getting a full connection and I wasn't getting the full sound. And she's like, how did you hear that? I'm like, I can just tell. It doesn't sound right to me. So I know it's a geeky thing. I know it's, a, it's an audiophile thing, but... I love good crisp surround sound. I love the thump of the subwoofer. I love the fact that I bought that and I don't have to go to the movie theater now and I can kick back with a beer and if I want to pause it, I can and whatever. Um, I still love the theater experience, like going to the movies, but man, I love my home theater. Well, listen, if I ever hit the super-duper mega lottery and I'm by you know, the gigantic mansion we live in, 
the very first thing I'm doing is I'm turning <laughs> one of the rooms into a home theater. I mean, that's you know that's the dream of people like us. You know, see, mm-hmm. that's why we don't have the super duper mansion. It is just in the home theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we live in a big trailer, but it's got a huge theater. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, actually, I've got uh, three in college right now. So, yeah, there's no going anywhere, by the way. So if it hadn't been bought beforehand, I wouldn't have been able to get it now. Mm. <laughs> I, I just reiterate what, the fact that Kurt Russell has completely disconnected with the use of the language in this minute about, you know, get a new president like he doesn't care. He's not my president. This is your war or, you know, I don't give a you know a blank about your war. It's very much. I'm not part of your world anymore, so why should I care about what you're offering me? And I love when he goes, you know, you know, you got to think about it. He goes, I, you know, he goes, is that a no? And he's like, I'm thinking. Like he realizes I'm caught between a rock and a hard place, but I don't want to admit it, at least not just yet. And at the very end, he does have to accept the fact I'm going in one way or the other. At least this way, there's sort of the idea that there's a way out. Right. He's got his principles, but hmm, freedom, I, you know. You, you, he, he's got to make that choice. And, and I do like that it comes down to the very simple, I'm going in one way or the other. I might as well be on my terms. Right. Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. now I have a chance to get out. That's it. I wanted to sort of just that. It's, it's amazing because it comes to fruition in literally a 60-second moment of the movie. There is no go home and think about it. It's do it now. <laughs> and he's got to play that mental game of chess, which is the better move. Is the better move to still screw this guy and not cooperate? Or give myself a another opportunity to maybe extend the game longer, but maybe I can make it move in my favor down the road. Very tactical. It's very much you get the sense of somebody who's weighing the options quickly and I think makes the right call. All right, Alan. Alan will be back again tomorrow, but until then, why don't you remind everybody where they can find you usually? Thanks a lot. Yeah, everything, it's great. We were able to get lucky enough that the name of the show fits everywhere without having to change the title in any of the social media spaces. It's The Wilder Ride where we look at the films of Gene Wilder one minute at a time. It's thewilderride.com, Wilder Ride on Facebook. That's also the name of our listeners group. We've got a Twitter account. We've got an Instagram. We've got a Patreon page. Uh, we did Young Frankenstein for season one. We did uh, Blazing Saddles for season two, and we have had a blast. We've also had some special Patreon content that we did for our subscribers. So Walt Murray is my co-host. He and I have had an absolute blast diving into this world of podcasting, looking at films one minute at a time, and we invite you to come check it out. Awesome. Let's give, uh, let's give some thank yous on today's episode here. Our, our ever-present immortal producer behind the scenes, <laughs> Brad Mendenhall, who was not allowed to speak. Thank you so much for your hard work and for nobody getting to hear you at all for your troubles. Uh, we talked about the music a bit. Uh, our really cool intro-outro music, which is John Carpenter-esque, is by K.J. Valensic, so we thank him for writing that music for us for our show. And let's give a shout-out to Growler Media, our hosts, Bobby Flores at Growler Media, for hosting uh, the website that we have our illustrious podcast at. And if you want to chat about our illustrious podcast, we're on Facebook. Join us in Brain's Library. That's the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. Or write to us on Twitter, NYMinutePod. Rate and review us. We love to see that. We're, we're hopeful that we'll, we'll get some nice reviews someday. Well, who knows? By the time we record this, maybe we've already got reviews. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so uh, while I figure out what I'm talking about, remember to be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.